Welcome to What Matters Now. And again, I'm going to hand the mic over to Mishi Harman, the co-creator of Israel Story, the premier English language podcast out of Israel. Mishi, thank you so much for letting me join you in your Nomi studios for another compilation episode between the Times of Israel and Israel's story for your Wartime Diaries series. Oh, of course. Thank you so much, Amanda, for coming on a cold and rainy Jerusalem day. It is such a pleasure to be here in the studio as usual. And we have three amazing episodes coming up. Please stick around till the end because it's just an amazingly emotional and fantastic episode. But first of all, Mishi, I want you to just explain to me what are your pop-up storytelling events that you've been talking about on all of your ads and in all of your episodes? Yeah, you know, in addition to Israel Story, the podcast, there's a whole other side of our operation, which is basically live story events. And prior to the war, what happened is that we would create these events. They would travel around town in East Jerusalem, West Jerusalem, uh, Haredi neighborhoods, ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods, religious neighborhoods, secular neighborhoods. They took place in Hebrew and in English and in Arabic. And uh, we're now organizing an event in Yiddish. And people tell stories. These are regular people, not performers or um, people who are accustomed to standing on a stage and talking to a large audience. And they're really magical because they attract a very, very diverse population. And you look out into the audience and you really see Jerusalem. You see ultra-Orthodox and you see secular and you see rich and you see poor and you see young and old and you see Arabs and Jews and um, Russians and Ethiopians and foreign workers. And it's really quite something. And then ever since the war began, we essentially pivoted entirely and have been directing all of this activity towards communities that have been particularly impacted by the war. So evacuees, as you know, Jerusalem had more than 30,000 evacuees from the north and from the south living in hotels and in temporary housing, hospital wards, old age homes, communities of spouses of people in reserve duty. So we would go and create these events that allowed people to share stories of what's going on in their lives or stories that don't have to do with the current situation. And there were always a lot of tears. There was always a lot of laughter also. And it was you know, part of the sort of cultural offerings that uh, were happening to allow some sort of space for people to process and to think out loud and to share. And what people told us again and again was how meaningful it was for them to be able to tell their stories and have other people listen to them. So we actually started a new part of this operation, which was essentially we've created this roving recording studio where we go and set up shop in a hotel, spend a few days there, and allow people to come in and record their stories. We, of course, send it to them, edit it, and it's been a very, very meaningful project for us and and hopefully also has done some good in this terrible, terrible situation that we're all in. Mishi, thank you so much for shedding light on that. It's really fascinating, and I had no idea. So really, thank you for sharing that. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing, environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders we hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best the american technion society world-changing discoveries by israel's brightest minds made possible by you So 
So we have three episodes that we've mutually agreed upon, and we're going to start out with one with a woman who is from Sterot originally, but is now living in Yerucham. Along the way, she was also in Netanya. She's called Shira Masami. She's a mother of five, and uh, her story is quite interesting just in terms of what happened to her on October 7th. But I suspect that you guys chose her because of her views and what should happen after the war. Yeah. So one of the most important facets of these wartime diaries is really to try to capture the diversity of views around us. And that's often challenging because, as you well know, Amanda, people have very strong views about things these days. And it's also important for us to bring views that we don't share. And in fact, it's often more important for us to bring views that we don't share. And I can say personally, not as Israel Story, the organization, but just personally, I do not share Shira's views at all. And it's always a bigger challenge to try to do as good a job as you can to represent views that you disagree with than views that you do. Our producer, Zev Levi, went and spent time with Shira and heard both what it's like to be uprooted from your home and live in these hotels and what, you know, sort of day-to-day life is like. And then also hear her very honest and for, I'm sure, many listeners challenging views about how she imagines this playing out. In Sderot, this is the best life we can build even we had a a terrorist attack. Wouldn't the best place to live, you know not have rockets and terrorist attacks? You know, in Israel, I don't think that there is a place that they have no terrorist attack. As a Jew, we all the time fighting our life everywhere. We feel like we are living in Gan Eden. Heaven. Heaven. So sometimes there is a war and we deal it and we keep going. Hey listeners, I want to say something. We do our best to try and feature diverse voices and different views in this series. These aren't necessarily our voices or our views, but rather a representation, obviously just a partial representation, of what we're hearing among and around us. More than 200,000 Israelis from both the South and the North have had to leave their home since the start of the war. Some have relocated to hotels or kibbutzim. Others have opted to move in with family or friends, or even just rent a place in an entirely new surrounding. We've aired several diaries about initiatives that cater to the evacuees in terms of education, or housing, or culture. In fact, Israel Story itself is such an initiative, with our Sipur Yerushalmi project, which goes to dozens of hotels and sets up pop-up recording booths and live storytelling events. But today, we're going to get a glimpse from the inside of what life is like as an evacuee, what a day looks like far away from anything familiar. Shira Masami is one of nearly 30,000 residents who have left the southern city of Sderot, a city which suffered a horrendous attack on October 7th, and who are now dispersed around the country. Zev Levi went down to Yerucham, where Shira and her family have temporarily settled, to talk to her. Here she is. My name is Shira. Hello. Uh, I am from Sderot. I am 35 years old. Uh, Okay. I'm a teacher. Uh, My husband is Dvir. Uh, I have five kids. The oldest is uh, 11 years old. And the little one is three. Can you walk me through your experience of October 7th? In the 7th uh, October, we was at home. We wake up to the rockets and the Tseva Dome. There was a siren and uh, it's not stopping. And we're thinking, okay, what is going on? Nobody from the government, from the city, tell us stay in your home, don't do anything. We don't open the phones at all. We don't know anything. And we think it's holiday now. It's Imchat Torah. So 
we need to go to the shul. That was all the time in our mind. We need to go to the shul. We need to go to the shul. We don't understand. We don't realize what happened. The tourist was in all the street of around us. All the street was full of tourist people. And we're thinking, okay, there is a tourist in the city, but one hour, two hours, they're going. They, they die. They, they cannot be here for, for all the time. So after a one hour, I telling to my husband, okay, you can go into the shul now. So he take a knife and I tell him, what you taking a knife? The, the tourist had a gun, what you will doing? And he say, I prefer that from nothing. And he take a knife in the pocket and he's going and the neighbor call them from the windows and tell them that there is a tourist. So the neighbor uh, saved him a few a street from us, the tourists killed people that go to the shul. And in the end, when we opened the phones, we realized and it was darkness. It was shocked. It was, I was very weak uh, in these moments. I cannot do anything. And that's, that's what, what it is. You, you, you have no one, nobody. And you realize that you're waiting for your death. That's what the feeling. So we was thirteen. Uh, uh, we was uh, thirteen people in the mamad in, at night. My my husband mother was sleeping on the chair, and uh, all the kids together with the two mattresses uh, together, everybody, and I was sleeping on the my children uh, doobie. A teddy bear teddy bear and everybody uh, we just uh, trying to sleeping but it was I, it's not a fear it's a eima I don't know if there is this word in English maybe uh, dread dread I think dread yeah how does that end so the next morning so it was morning and we suddenly feel uh, okay now it's okay now there is a sun in the sky so now it's morning now it's not fear anymore uh, even though it, the, the city was full of tourists so we decided to go out from the road we say we don't stay here uh, anymore so i started to package the uh, clothes when you are packing a bag for you and your husband and your five kids what do you pack you know this one needs to sleep with this toy and in the daytime i think no, this will i don't think about toys at all i'm thinking i don't know how much time we're going out because i don't know it will be going to be cold at night because we don't know where we're going we don't know when we come back and i take a few things that i i sure will need it's Shabbat clothes, um, little sweater for every kid, and uh, clothes for three days. That's all, just three days. And I go to my family in Atania. Were the kids ever annoyed that they had to wear Shabbat clothes every day? So they have a lot of complaints, the kids, but we, we tell them, you cannot complain about this. I don't like this shirt. Okay, that's what you have. Okay, I don't like this skirt. Okay, this is what you can wear now because you have no other clothes. So maybe they complain. I, I even don't remember this complaint. They complain they have no school. They complain they have no friends. They complain that they don't like this place that they are in. They they have a lot of complaints. The fact is that they usual to this kind of war that they, they package for a few days and they need to, they need to be okay with that, what they have. So we tell the kids, look, Hamas uh, uh, give you a present and we have a trip now and uh, you have no school and we're going to visit place and visit family and we're going to have a fun. But when the area, the municipality. Yeah, <laughs> As uh, when they uh, call us to offer uh, hotels, so 
we go because how much time you can be a guest uh, so the municipality calls you and says like we're we're putting everyone up in, in hotels and you go where do you go what's the hotel uh, it was a oasis hotel in Yamamelach. how was that so we have a room in the first floor and the fourth floor so we are not together all the time and you need to sleep with the kids you don't uh, giving to children to sleep in the hotel alone yeah so I'm sleeping in one room and my husband sleeping in the other room and it's very difficult we, you have no family life in this uh, situation you know okay it's now morning we're going to eat okay now it's lunch we're going to eat now it's evening we're going to eat all the time eat 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 and um, they, they see movies and eating that was the start of the days in the hotels no friends, no community, no, just no. That's what you have, a big, big no. It's, it's, it's fun for three days. Every family that's going to the, with the kids to hotels, after three days, the parents want a weekend by themselves. So we was a month with this situation, a month with the kids in the hotel. The hotel is, I feel like it's hospital, a big hospital of people that they have no home, they have no house, they have no things, they have no clothes, they have nothing. It's very tough. We, it's not usual, it's not family life. We want a family life. We want a, a usual life. So we thinking and decided we're going to get apartment. We want kitchen, we want to cook. And we found in Yerucham, a little apartment that they can live there. So we're here now. I never, never imagined that I will miss to cook. Never. I never imagined that I miss to clean up, missing to clean the clothes. I, I hate these uh, jobs. And now uh, I cannot find a word for how, what I'm feeling, how much I wanted to cook. I want to clean the clothes. I want to clean the, to clean the house. And now I love it. I want control, so we come here, even it's hard, it's hard, it's not easy. You're renting this place? Yeah. How many rooms does this place have? Two uh, sleeping rooms, uh, it's four kids in one room and the little with us. And this place came empty, you had to buy everything? Yeah. Every day we're going and buy a thing to the apartment we buy the coach we buy the television we, we, every time we we going and make it to be home but it's just different we, we it's not a we are not ourselves we are not who we are now because we are we are different the kids different we are different the situation is different everything is different and it's get changed all the time we are in Natanya now we are in Yamamelach now we are in Yerucham now we, it's all the time change and uh, we need to be okay all the time with the, the changing uh, of the situation and I hope it will be uh, finished and for the last time now do you have a plan for how long you're going to be in Yerucham I want to be in Yerucham till the war is end, okay? But I deal with my kids that they don't want to be here. They all the time missing their friends. They want to go to a hotel that they, their friend there. And we fight with them all the day uh, about that. I hope they start to be okay here and we can stay. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, I, I believe it's take time. It's take few months, at least. It's not a... It's not short time to be here. So we hope it will be short, but we know it's not. And when it is all over, what do you want to see? Uh, like Israel controlling Aza again, like Gush Katif? Yeah, of course. That's what we hope will be. That what need to be, because only Israeli Itishvut Settlement. In Aza. That's the only way this is not happened again. Okay, so... Let's say the war ends, Israel destroys Hamas, but there's still going to be two million Palestinians in Gaza. Two million terrorists in Gaza. Everybody, everybody. No one stop this. No one say, it's not okay to kidnap children. It's not okay to kidnap women. It's not the Islam religion to 
rapes women. Okay, nobody say nothing. They say, okay, we have kidnapped, we have a victory. That's what the Palestinian, two millions terrorist Palestinian in Gaza says. So I don't care about the children of the enemy. I don't care because these children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children when they go to grown up. So I don't care about them. I think they not deserve to the life. They don't deserve to, to anything. Maybe they can go to Canada, to Europe. All the people that, that thinking, oh, the poor Palestine, take them. Take the poor Palestine, take care of them. We don't want to live close to them anymore. Never again. Maybe there's few people that want to be live in peace or something. Okay, come. But now in Gaza, there is a Israeli army who of them that want to be okay with us can come and say, we are support you. We are giving you the, your kidnap. We are uh, giving you uh, uh, information about Hamas uh, terrorists, but they don't. So if Israel doesn't control Gaza at the end of the war, will you not go back to Sterot? I don't know. It's a big, big question. We're thinking about this all the time. All the time, every day, I'm thinking about that. From the one side, we are going to go back because this is our home. And if we don't come back, it will be the victory of the terrorists. But from the other side, if we're going back, it will be happened again. I don't know. I don't want to deal with this question. I want the worries ended when there is no question like that. I want to tell you that when we released Shira Masami's episode, we got a lot, a lot of both angry and supportive reactions. And one that stood out was a woman from Idaho who was so touched by Shira's story that she offered to pay her rent in this apartment that she is renting in Yerucham. And we've since put her in touch with Shira, which was, you know, one of these moments where you say like, oh, well, the stories that we share also have an afterlife and things happen as a result of them. And at the same time, a lot of people were quite disturbed by, by some of the things that Shira said. Listeners, for anyone who would like to hear more about this movement to resettle Gush Katif, please check out on the Times of Israel an article written by Mati Wagner, a very fascinating in-depth look. And so our next installment, we're going to focus on a woman who's called Charlene Seidel, who is a philanthropist, or she works for a philanthropic organization. And what I found really interesting about her is how she describes herself as never quite being an insider or an outsider, somebody in between. And so when she was describing her experiences, both right before October 7th and following it, she was actually in San Diego, if I'm not mistaken, when it broke out. And she had to grapple with this idea, okay, I'm not an Israeli citizen, but yet I spend half my life in Israel. Where do I fit into this story? And how can I help others also do something good in this time when everybody is asking, what can we do to help? Right. So Charlene is a dear friend and an amazing, amazing woman who has really championed hundreds of projects and causes primarily here in Jerusalem for years and has a tremendous network of people who really do good in this world that she has supported and encouraged for years. And she found herself, as you say, in this unique situation it was actually because of her sort of insider-outsider positioning that she was able to see a much, much broader picture than we were able to hear on the ground. And she spends like half her time here. And, you know, the war has blurred a lot of the lines between Israel and the Jewish diaspora, A, in terms of funding. I mean, uh, as we say in the episode, upward of a billion dollars have been uh, sent to Israel since the start of the war. 
which by the way, our producer Mitch Ginsburg was just looking into this, is comparable to the amount of US dollars that were sent in 1948 if you adjust for inflation. And Charlene is at the center of this and has a perspective on all of this. And we wanted to hear what that's like. What is it like when you read a newspaper article or you get a phone call from a grantee telling you about what's going on and you actually have the tools to do something about it? I also really loved, we'll hear it in the episode, but so many people after October 7th reached out to me asking me where they should put their money. And I have no, no skill set to deal with that question. And so I was so happy just to have this expert voice out there. And so anyone who's still wondering where to put their money, listen to this. You know, nothing in like philanthropy school prepares you for managing a diverse staff in a time of war. I mean, nothing prepares you for having a few people on your staff that are deployed into Gaza um, or whose spouses were to having also people on your staff, you know, close colleagues whose cousins are in Gaza um, and are having to evacuate where they are or have been killed. Hey, listeners, it's Mishi. As you can hear, I'm a bit under the weather. So, one of the most heartening aspects of the war was the manner in which people around the world, and especially Jews around the world, rallied behind Israel and started sending over money, equipment, and support. There are all kinds of estimates floating around, but most of them talk of upward of $1 billion, some say even significantly more than a billion dollars, that were sent to Israel since October 7th. And that too is part even a major part of the story of the war. For years, Charlene Seidel, the executive vice president of the San Diego-based Lishtag Foundation, has been at the forefront of the Jewish philanthropic world. The Lishtag Foundation supports all kinds of causes, both in the States and here in Israel, but their main local focus is Jerusalem, and specifically bridging social and economic gaps in the city. They've given life to hundreds of grassroots initiatives and have created what's called the Jerusalem Model, a diverse network of social entrepreneurs, activists, and leaders from all sectors around town. Jews, Muslims, Christians, religious, secular, you name it. Now, because Charlene and her team have been nurturing and cultivating these relationships for so long, they were particularly well-situated to understand the needs on the ground in the immediate aftermath of October 7th. Mitch Ginsburg and I sat down with Charlene in our studio in Jerusalem to get a peek into the mindset of a funder during these difficult days. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Charlene Seidel. I'm um, Executive Vice President of the Tag Foundation, and I spend about half my time in San Diego and half my time in Jerusalem. Um, I think I've always been somebody that's sort of never felt quite on the inside or the outside of any group that I'm in. I'm sort of a consummate, I think, like insider, outsider. And my dream is to have all the possessions that I own in one carry-on suitcase. Maybe that's being the granddaughter of survivors, I don't know, or many, many generations that had a flea in minutes. And where were you when the war broke out, here or there? Um, well, it was still October 6th. <laughs> I was in San Diego. It was Friday night. It was my birthday. And actually, I'm not really into birthdays, but I had sort of a weekend of plans. And I had gotten home from Shabbat dinner. And I was just like, ah, you know, there are these sirens from time to time. Like, don't worry about it. It happens. And then, though, I started to get more insights sort of from the ground, still very garbled about what was happening here. And so I was up all night, you know, trying to just like text with people, understand better just what was happening, looking at the news. And there was no clarity in anything. I was feeling very, you know, helpless in San Diego, incredibly helpless. And what's that like to be so far away and to feel helpless? Um, not not pleasant to feel helpless, especially when you like to be in control. Um, I felt like I was somehow transported back in time, you know, seeing scenes that I had only read about, you know, in, in history books. I felt like I was listening to my, my Berlin-born grandfather who left Berlin after Kristallnacht to go to South Africa and actually didn't even talk about his experience until he was like in his 80s. Mm. Um, I mean, 
am very much like shaped by my Jewish upbringing and Jewish identity and Jewish education by my experience um, of being brought up as a religious Jew and um, as being brought up also by the children of immigrants who themselves were the children of refugees, who were also the children of refugees. So um, I felt like I was in a nightmare that I couldn't wake up from. And I have felt like that for many, many weeks afterwards. So what does one do in that kind of state? I mean, I was in a privileged spot where I had the trust of both people on the ground and people that were anxiously, you know, wanting to know behind the headlines what was happening and to devote resources to that. And I I always tell our team that we have the ability working in a foundation to look at a newspaper headline and to not feel powerless and to feel like I can do something about this. You know, even it's a small, tiny thing, those small things can add up. Mm -hmm. You know, I told so many people, and I really feel this for myself, like each of us is going to look back at that day. I mean, it's going to shape our life, I think. It's changed each of us. And we're each going to look back and we're going to say, what did I do that was within my power to make things better for people whose lives have been torn apart? And so I really wanted that answer. I wanted to be able to tell my niece and nephews and and others in that, like, what what my answer to that was. Um, And so we just started to, like, send, you know, some resources over to the people that we already trusted. That was the thing. We already had a network of people on the ground that we trusted that were very, very close to the needs across sectors. And I mean, needs were changing by the minute. We couldn't like worry about, you know, reports or anything like that. I mean, we didn't set any fundraising goals. And so within hours, I think on the 8th or the 9th, we just set up like a page on our website and send an email and we called it the Israel Emergency Grassroots Response Initiative. And in it, we said, First of all, you know, here's a a fund you can give to, and it's just going to be, you know, used for people on the ground. But also we said, look, these are flexible funds, and it's different from what we often advise in terms of strategic philanthropy, which is to really understand the need. Uh, And I gave advice that I've never given. I just told them, like, don't worry about duplication. Don't worry about, you know, who's doing what or giving too much or giving to the wrong thing. You can't go wrong. Give to everything. Like, give to anything that asks you. They just need funds, and it's going to be money well spent. And how did that go? I'm really proud to say that well north of 500 people have now donated to the initiative, um, most of them from San Diego and really with very, very little fundraising, really no fundraising on our part, just people that were very moved to, to do so. And did you stop to think and take it all in or was it just like, go, go, go? I was in action mode and so I wasn't really analyzing anything at the time. I was just like doing and getting texts. Um, I was just so happy to have anything to do that I was, you know, fine with it. You know, I mean, I wasn't sleeping, that's for sure. So it didn't matter what time of day it was. I was spending a lot of those, you know, non-sleeping hours just sending texts to people like in East and West Jerusalem and starting to like get, you know, a sense of, of the fear that was very pervasive. And that's really what I think it was. Like, that's where the emotions were coming from across the board was fear. People were so afraid. And this kept me, this role, this doing role kept me from going insane. It's actually much harder, at least for me, to be like thousands of miles away reading headlines in terms of helplessness, because even if you can do things from overseas, you don't get the nuance of what's happening around you. You don't even like, you know, for all I knew, my street in Jerusalem was just a total war zone and there were tanks on the street. Like, I didn't know. So then when did you come to Israel? I was very lucky because I already had a flight scheduled on October 12th on Al Al. A lot of, you know, people were scrambling at the time. And I remember being struck because it was me and like, it was all people that were going back because they had been called up. Um, Usually it's a flight, especially after a holiday that has a lot of, you know, families and, you know, active children and there were no children on this, like it was me. and, And they were like really curious, like on the flight about me. I was, I think, the only person with just an American passport. I mean, the people at Alal asked me, why Why are you going? Do you know what's happening? Um, and I said, yeah. And I'll say that my, my parents were, like, shocked when I told them that I was going to go. And, and then I used, like, every mode of manipulation that I could. And I said, like, well, what do you expect? You know, you raised me to be this Zionist and you don't expect me. But for me, like, it was, again, for my own mental health that I went because I felt not that I can control a war, but at least I would be there. And at least, like, it would allow me to regain and recover from this sense of helplessness that I that I really felt. And what was it like to arrive in Jerusalem? 
it felt um, both at the same time um, totally heartbreaking because the streets were empty and you know actually the first hour an hour after i arrived there was a siren in jerusalem and you know people were were running around i was actually on a walk i i went into my california earthquake mode not really knowing what to do um which actually isn't far from what you're supposed to do when you're outside and there's a, a rocket siren but also it was very very reassuring to be back here to be on these streets again they fill me with an energy and a desire and a like drive that I think was very, very meaningful. And I was, you know, I mean, I came with a little bit of trepidation, but it was more um, like I really felt this is going to be like better, you know, to be here. And it was to like, to just be here, to be able to talk to people in person. And um, then I started to realize like the, the power of that role of the in-between more than I had ever before felt. And I went to East Jerusalem um, in the first 10 days after October 7th. And I think that really actually like meant a lot to show up. And it wasn't like showing any allegiance with anybody. It was just uh, on a human level. Like these were friends and colleagues and people that were I knew were working to make a difference and trying. Mm -hmm. And so what were you hearing from the grantees there in East Jerusalem? So that they were afraid to leave their house, that um, they were afraid to go to work, that they were didn't know what to tell their children. They were afraid of the sirens. You know, they were afraid of rockets. They were afraid of what was going to come in terms of reprisals. They were just afraid. Um, and I heard, you know, in those first weeks that more than 100,000 people, in fact, weren't going to their jobs in the other side of the city, most of them because of fear, but also because some of them had been, you know, fired. Okay, so you were checking in with a lot of your grantees yeah, I would like spend when I was here days like talking to people with, I mean, just very, very painful stories and visiting people who had lost loved ones or whose family members were being held hostage or who had been evacuated. And it was like terrible. There's like pain coming from every direction, you know. Right. And what did you tell the grantees? My constant refrain was we're in like the earliest days, we're in the earliest weeks. Everybody's extremely emotional. I told them this is not the time to be going out and championing the word peace. I felt, and I still in a way do, that it's almost a trigger word, peace. I, I it's not productive. And the time will come when people will be ready to hear the message again, but you can't talk to people that don't have the ability to take in or to hear what you're trying to say. So, so how do you know where to direct your energy and what to support? Um, in the early weeks of this, I couldn't rely on my intuition. I had moments that um, I couldn't make a decision and I didn't have a strong, like, this is what we need to do. Like, certainly around managing the diverse staff and like in some of the early staff meetings, those were moments of uncertainty that I feel uncertain all the time. I mean, that's my life, but I usually can kind of rely on an intuition and a professional basis um, and then just kind of go with it and have a little bit of confidence to go with it. And, um, and I just couldn't. You know, I just couldn't. I didn't have any intuition. It almost felt like I do when I'm navigating direction on the street. I have no sense of direction. So if I have a feeling to go one way, I go the opposite way. Like I felt that way about my intuition. And that was a moment that that shook me because I felt like that was what I have to offer. I mean, what else do I have besides, you know, that I'm not somebody that can like engineer something or go and save people's lives, you know, in in the South or, but I can try to advise or help or, you know, and I have to rely on my intuition. So not, not having that, not being able to rely on intuition, that certainly shook me. There were many moments of despair, but one of the most moving experiences was being in one of the hotels um, where the evacuees were and like all of a sudden seeing this, you know, big group of um, Haredi women that showed up. Um, uh, with huge laundry baskets of like folded laundry and um, and I was like what you know what's going on and I guess like this group from an adjacent neighborhood had just you know shown up one night and like thought to themselves like well what do these evacuees need they're stuck in you know hotel rooms well they don't have washing machines or dryers they don't have anything to do with their clothes so they they went there every single night and they um, picked up the dirty laundry and then they would wash it at home and then come back with clean laundry you know, really like that really resonates, like the need to hold the human. And so getting those like very raw 
perspectives, you know, um, was really um, formative in thinking about I'm a control freak and how can I, you know, get back some kind of ability to influence. And looking ahead, where do you think things will go? I mean, everybody's talking about the day after, right? And how do you know it's the day after? And I'm not sure that we are going to know necessarily. Um, I don't know that there is going to be a day after. I think that's magical thinking. I think a big question now for philanthropy is when does philanthropy become a crutch for government? When does philanthropy need to just get out of the way so that government can, you know, do its job? And I don't think there are clear answers because we're not over. We're not in post anything. We're in this. I mean, this is a marathon and a sprint at the same time. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So... Educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our final installment had me just shattered in tears. So a big warning to anyone who still has a heart after reading about all the atrocities that have happened since October 7th. This is going to be a rough ride, but so worth it. I asked you if we could play this episode because my eldest son is gay. And this is an episode in which a gay man talks about his fight to be recognized as a spouse after his partner, who is supposed to marry two weeks after his death. And he fought this fight against bureaucracy, against homophobia in the worst of times possible. He fought against the religious establishment in a way. He fought against the army. He fought against the government. And he found results. So we're talking, of course, about Omer Ohana. What were your thoughts when you decided to have him as part of these postcards, these slices of life? Yeah, um, the tragic story of Omer Ohana and Sagi Golan who were both called up to reserve duty on October 7th and who were supposed to get married two weeks later, got a lot of play in that first week of the war. And the way that media works and the pace of events that we've experienced in the last three months is that things are a story and then sort of forgotten. And we went back to Omer two months afterwards to hear how he was holding up and people grieve in different ways. And what Omer decided to do was to essentially become an activist and to use his story as a way to change policy here in Israel in the context of same-sex marriages in the army. And as you say, um, our producers, Adina Karpuch and Mitch Ginsburg, spent hours with him, and I think it took them days to recover. It's a heart-wrenching and difficult episode to listen to. But as the mother of a gay child, I so respect his fight and his doing in his time of grief. And this episode is so important to listen to. I mean, the military, they did uh, acknowledge common partners, but they did that as a grace. The law mentioned a man and a wife. So by the law, I'm not equal. By the law, they shouldn't consider me. Um, a widower. A widower. And it was very clear to me that this is the next wall I need to take down. We need to change that. The war has, sadly, brought many new people 
into the limelight. We've heard stories of casualties, and hostages, and survivors, and family members. And many of those stories have entered our hearts and never left. In some cases, we feel like we've gotten to know the heroes personally. One of the first big stories of the war, in that very first and crazy week after October 7th, was that of 30-year-old Sagi Golan from Herzliya, a decorated officer in an anti-terrorism unit who was killed in action in Beiri in the early hours of October 8th. His story made headlines because Sagi was supposed to have married his partner, Omer Ochana, two weeks later. And his death brought to the fore, once again, the matter of the army and LGBTQ rights. See, ever since the mid-90s, the IDF has recognized same-sex partners of fallen soldiers as eligible to receive all the rights, financial and emotional support, as heterosexual partners. But that was just a practice, and the matter was never enshrined in law. So in the weeks after Sagi's death, Omer led a successful campaign to legally secure the rights of same-sex and common-law partners of fallen soldiers. Our producers Mitch Ginsberg and Adina Karpuch went to talk to him. Um, my name is Omer, Omer Hanna, uh, Sagi's partner. And could you tell us a bit about a bit about yourself, like where you grew up? And so I grew up in a traditional family. I have five siblings. I'm the last one. I'm the sixth. And it was very clear to me since ever that I'm gay. At the age of 16, I came out from closet to my friends, then to my family. So with my friends, it was like perfectly normal and fine. They accepted it right away. My family at the beginning thought it's something that it will pass away with time. I mean, my father have a very big family and they're very religious. So it was harder for him than for my mother. But it was a surprise for both of them. I mean, I don't think they imagined it is possible to have a, to have a gay uh, child. And today my mother goes as a proud mother of a proud gay man. She's proud of it. She doesn't hide it. She's the first one who will support their Pride Month and the parade. And, you know, also my father as a Moroccan that, you know, made Aliyah from Morocco in, in ships. So eventually we all came to the same point. We're all good with it. Can you tell us about meeting Sagi? Yeah. Uh, it was June 2018. Back then I was like, almost 23, and there was a conference of young leadership uh, organization in Israel. I was sitting on the grass with uh, two of my friends, and Sagi came, and he introduced himself. Hey, just, you know, starting talking, small talks. I mean, I was very excited because I felt he's, like, hidden on me. But it ended up with, like, a good conversation, but without us, like, exchanging numbers or uh, yeah. <laughs> And I was, like, too proud to ask his number. The conference got to an end, and I was, like, walking out of the hotel. And then Sergei, like, ran to me and said, Hey, we haven't exchanged any contact details, so... And I was, yeah, let's, uh, let's do it. <laughs> it was Saturday, um, and on Sunday we had a our first date. The very next day. Yeah. It was, I mean, Sagi was so, he was so handsome. He was so smart. He was the whole package, you know. I didn't want to miss it. It was on the, on the Shuk Machniuda market. We just sat there on a bar. The bar closed on us. <laughs> So we started walking on the street of Jerusalem for hours. And then uh, it was becoming late, so Sagi uh, walked with me to, to my car. And I was like, everything felt so perfect. Next to my car, um, an embarrassing moment, me thinking about it. 
is our first kiss gonna be in a in a parking lot? <laughs> and it was. We kissed, and even though it was like the Machne Yuda parking lot, I felt so secured. And the Machne Yuda market in Jerusalem is not like the most uh, gay-friendly place in the world, but I felt so comfortable. <laughs> Driving back home, I was so excited I had to speak with someone, so I called my friend and uh, I was telling her it's too good to be true. Like, as a catcher. So, you started going out. When did you decide to bring him home? Not long after I met Sagi, it was very important for me to, to be with Sagi at a Shabbat dinner. Shabbat dinner at my house is like the most special time of the week when you meet all of your family. It's a long, long table. Back then, my family was everything to me, you know, as a young adult. And then Sagi started to become the most important thing in my life. So I wanted those both things, my family and Sagi, to be connected. And, you know, I was afraid. It was the first man ever coming to my family as my partner. You know, I'm the prince of the house, you know. Everybody is, like, looking to take care of me. And bringing somebody new to the family, it's bringing somebody new to 25 other persons' lives. So... Was it kind of like this unspoken, um, you know, everyone be nice, but just like... Not at all. So the Johanna family doesn't, uh, you know, it works differently. You don't keep anything in your uh, stomach. Everybody says what they're thinking. It's a a Moroccan house. It's filled with love and concern to each other. But it's also a loud house. And you need to be... You need to stand on your own. And even with all of their opinions about being gay and difficulties it summons to your life, everybody falls in love with Sagi immediately. And it couldn't be more perfect than it was. And then we just moved in together. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, who's the messy one? Who leaves the hair in the shower? Sagi and I were very different from one another. He was the organized person. He was all about planning financially our life, um, you know, putting the things in order. And I was like... The one that imagined everything and, you know, drawing my <laughs> my clothes all over the place. He was about volunteering all day long. And I was about, let's go out together. He was a healthy one, you know, eating chia seeds and stuff like that. Things like <laughs> I personally cannot eat. <laughs> Not a main staple in the Ohana family. <laughs> no, in the Ohana family, you know, you do barbecue. So, we were different from one another, but we also admired each one way of life. Can you tell us a bit about how that morning went? Take your time, but... Yeah. You know what, I'll start on the 6th of October. That was a nice day. So on the 6th of October, his uh, sergeant uh, was getting married. And, uh, you know, we planned our wedding in the same time. Every wedding we we went to was like, we were looking on the on those small things. The, the details. Yeah, the details. What you can take uh, to your wedding and... And uh, all of his uh, team members from his uh, service was in the wedding, and they're like, they're goofy. <laughs> they're like dancing, uh, dancing like crazy, and and we had a great time. And then we went back from the from the wedding, and uh, Sagi was drunk. <laughs> I was not. <laughs> Um driving uh, back to Australia, we we played uh, Powerful of uh, of Red Band, and we were screaming on the car. Such a good time. On that Saturday, uh, 
woke up on the 7th of October to a siren. Went back to bed, opened the news. It's like he's hanging me from behind, holding his phone, scrolling the news. The headlines were families are trapped. Terrorists. You know, as a paramedic, I saw some stuff. I treated people in hard conditions. But the images came from Telegram in that morning. Or something human cannot imagine. So he jumped out of bed. And I'm not a morning person. I saw him uh, putting uh, his IDF uniforms and I jumped out of bed as well. Usually Sagi made my coffee. <laughs> On that morning I made his. He was all over the place, he was texting and I helped him pack. He was talking with his team. It all happened like really quickly. I told him, don't be a hero. He was like, we're getting married. In two weeks, we cast. He left. He had a motorcycle, so he, he wanted to drive the motorcycle to, to the Adam base. When he bought the motorcycle, we had an agreement that he's not going to drive the motorcycle uh, in highways. And he was like, it's too urgent. I'm driving the motorcycle to that. And I was like, nope, you're not. So he drove the motorcycle to a different officer from the Latari unit. And they drove together to the Adam facility to, to gear up. Where they're gonna Yeah. And I was already uh, recruited as well. So you were also called up to the army that day? Yeah. So I was heading to the Lebanon uh, border. And we talked on the phone and, you know, I had uh, so many things to sort out. And So you're heading north and Sagi's heading to Berry? Yeah. Sagi arrived to Berry around 5 p.m. that Saturday. Sagi got uh, a mission to, uh, to extract all the families from the Kerem, which is the street... Uh, on Barry's uh, fence, same fence they reached, and he was leading his team from one house to another, extracting uh, families. The house was burning, the street was filled with bodies, with tanks. It was like a, just a shit show, and I met. The families that Sagi saved and you know they they are so grateful and they remember him introducing himself behind the door telling them I'm Sagi from Herzliya you're safe <laughs> the last family they extracted the father of the family told me he was thirsty because they was trapped for like so many hours. So Sagi gave him his water. I mean, it's a small detail, but uh, that was Sagi was. <laughs> Sagi extracted children from from shelter. He he covered their eyes so they won't have to see their parents be slaughtered in the living room. And were you in touch this whole time? We had an equipment that. Uh, because both of us were very busy <laughs> to to send their heart to each other on WhatsApp every round hour. <laughs> Just to know that uh, the other one is okay. We didn't really have the time to to talk with each other. So <laughs> every round hour Two hearts. One for me, one for me. And then he stopped responding. 
on Sunday morning. He didn't answer. And I was knowing for sure something happened. I collapsed. I, I started to throw up. I fainted. I mean, my body couldn't suffer the thought. At that time, Segi's mother was on his way to pick me up. My friends was on their way to pick me up. My mother was on the way to pick me up. And then there was a period of several days in which you just didn't know what exactly had happened? Between Tuesday to Wednesday, my sister woke, woke me up. I was uh, on my parents' house at Jerusalem. And she was, can you come down for a second? It was like 1 a.m. And I was, what do you want? And she was like, just come. So I went downstairs. And there were two officers standing there. They didn't say anything. As an Israeli when two officers are standing at the front of your door, they don't have to say anything. It goes without saying. If, if you don't mind me asking, what happened after that? I remember just, you know, getting into the car and driving into Wainana, where Eti, Sugi's mother, is living. And was it then, at, at that point, that you began to feel that on top of all of your grief, you were being treated differently as a same-sex couple? Yeah. And, you know, each family gets uh, a main officer that uh, escorts the family. And our main officer, he was a... Uh, not sensitive. He just uh, ignored me. I remember realizing that the officer is homophobic. I mean, one of his jobs is to go over the funeral ceremony with us. You know, he took care to mention and to add his personal view to the to the situation. And I remember him telling me, I, I will not be able to to tear my shirt on the funeral. In the Jewish funeral, you tear a bit the top of your shirt. You won't be able to do that, because you're not a woman. Can I ask, yeah, at the funeral, um, did you did you tear your shirt? <laughs> I did. Was the officer there? The officer was there. You know, I was taught that if you see a wall that prevents you getting what you want, you should take it down. And he was a wall. So it was a two days war against him. Those two days were ended at the funeral. You know, Oz, Sagi's brother, they came to tear his shirt first, and he was, nobody tears his shirt until Omer does. And we used the same flowers of the wedding centerpieces for Sagi's funeral and uh, every leader came to sing Zachit uh, which was supposed to be our aisle song and it was one of the biggest funeral at that time and the funeral was an end of something and the beginning of a, of a new thing mm-hmm. was it then that your battle began um, to be officially recognized in law as an army widower? Yeah. You know, in the Shiva, there were so many people here, and I didn't want anyone to hug me. I didn't want to hear anything except we're going to fight on that. So you reached out to politicians and an enshrine in law that the army would treat same-sex widowers in the exact same way in terms of benefits and everything that they do for heterosexual couples. Is, is that right? Yeah. And you were actually sitting there while the vote was happening in the Knesset. Yeah. The law had zero uh, Knesset members against it. And, uh, and it passed. And how did you 
how did that make you feel? Um, I expected to to feel a relief. I expected to feel something, but it just felt right. I mean, there is a long way to go still in order to achieve 100% equality for the gay community in Israel. (sighs) Being equal in death is not good enough. We need to be equal in life as well. Listeners, thank you for joining us today. And Mishi, thank you for letting me into your studio, which is always such a pleasure to visit and just sharing these slices of what Israel is today and hopefully a better tomorrow. Amen, amen, amen. And we say this every time that I hope that this is the last installment of Wartime Diaries that we'll be featuring on the podcast. It's always such an honor and a privilege for us to be able to highlight some of these Wartime Diaries on your show and in general to be able to release all of the Wartime Diaries on the Times of Israel. We feel always very, very lucky and honored to be part of such an outstanding media organization. The feeling is mutual. 